0: Welcome Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here, between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And this week, we're here to talk about Spirit Island in one of our classic deep dive episodes. Jake, how are you feeling and what are you thinking about this week's episode?
1: I am excited to talk, but I'm a little bit nervous, to be perfectly honest, because this is a game that has like such a loyal following that and it's such a deep game that, you know, it's it's hard to feel like I've got my arms totally around it. And and maybe I'd go as far to say that only a few people out there <laughs> fully have their arms around this beast of a game. Uh,
0: so just here to, to do my best. I think we're both coming at it from that perspective. And I'm really excited because I think we'll be able to fully discuss the game's decision space without fully understanding all of the potential content and sort of having a mastery of that side of it. Just because like you said, Jake, Spirit Island is such a massive game. I knew it was big, but I don't think I quite understood just how big of a board game is in this box and its expansion. So it's, it's pretty cool. And like you said, they're... We could do 10 episodes on Spirit Island, I think. And there's people who just have whole podcasts on Spirit Island. So hopefully this episode will be a a good first, you know, an exploratory probe into the decision space for people who want to learn more or for people who are masters of it. But without further ado, why don't you get into your synopsis or no your whatever we call it, your rating,
1: Rating, slogan, synopsis, all of the above. Yeah. Spirit Island is a remarkable achievement. It's a heavy strategy game with an innovative set of interwoven mechanisms that deliver emergent narrative alongside rich gameplay that is sure to leave victorious players satisfied and possibly wondering if they really got all the rules right.
0: Nine out of (laughs) ten. Amazing. So I'm impressed. So Spirit Island is a game that has garnered enough uh, respect from Jake that he has written down. A, a rating intro. <laughs> so um, I told
1: you I'm nervous about this week. I don't want to mess <laughs>
0: it up. <laughs> Got to get the tie on and be prepared. um I'm intrigued. So mine's pretty similar. I'll read it now. uh Spirit Island, having the golden reputation as a must play modern classic, I came into this deep dive expecting to not connect with the system's theme or decision space. Oh my goodness, was I wrong. On so many vectors, Spirit Island is a triumph. I've primarily experienced this decision space solo. There's but there's just enough emergent complexity and interaction to make its tiny world feel real. Losing Han, I felt real sadness and a crushing, crushing a colonial power like England on level 3 or 4, or goodness forbid, the one time I did it on 5, I've truly felt triumphant. A few weeks ago, a member of our Discord suggested the true rating scale is buy this game, play someone else's copy, or avoid. I'm not sure I agree, so I'm awarding Spirit Island a 9 out of 10, but... I'm opening my copy of Spirit Island right now, see if I can get the shrink open, (laughs) as an endorsement of the fact that this is a game everyone should try.
1: Uh, He's he's literally pulling the shrink wrap off of his copy of Spirit Island, something that really comes across well in the audio format, (laughs) which of course this podcast (laughs) is. Here we go, here we go. This is, we gotta get it for the bit. I don't know. We do we get it in there? Do we get it in The first ever podcast
0: unboxing. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome to all for all the innovative content. okay, let's dive into it. Uh, so wait,
1: what did you give it out of ten?
0: Nine out of ten. So all right, it's we have a consensus. yes, pretty rare for us actually to have a true consensus in games um though, I guess let's get into the game background real quick. So this is a game designed by R. Eric Reyes. It's published in 2017 by Greater Than Games. Um, and at the time of this recording, it's rank 11 on BGG and all-time board games. So pretty high in terms of ranking. And I think that's sort of what has Jake and I uh, feeling a little anxious. It's also, I would say, a lifestyle game in the way that maybe Magic the Gathering or even Terraforming Mars is, where people have just dedicate all of their board game playing or maybe a subset uh, to playing this game. I think that one thing that really sets the part, game apart also is that it's as much, in my eyes, a solo game as it is a cooperative game. Um, it plays differently in those different styles, but functions almost perfectly as both. Uh, maybe you yeah. could disagree.
1: No, I, I do agree. And my plays have primarily been solo as well, uh, playing both on the Steam version as well as a copy that I own. Uh, I have played a couple times Really, only a couple times cooperatively uh, with my wife, so primarily my plays have been solo too. and I also agree that you know this game is very comparable to something like Magic the Gathering, where if you wanted to, you could almost have have Spirit Island as your as your hobby rather than board gaming and just dive deep, and there's enough content there that I think it will it can leave you satisfied continuing exploring it for years. Yeah, absolutely. I think more content's always planned for this. I don't...
0: Yeah, there's another expansion on the horizon focusing on the Dahan. But if all of this sort of... If the Dahan is new to you, the spirits are new to you, the island is new to you, you've just clicked on this episode because... You've heard about this game and you think it's cool, we're going to go into a quick rules overview that will give you a better sense for the game, but definitely not teach you how to play it because it's pretty, like Jake said, it's a pretty complex game, uh, but there's a lot of reward for the players at the end of figuring out all of its systems and how they interact.
1: And before getting into that, for our pre-planners, we should say that next week will be a what we talk about episode and following that will be an episode on race for the galaxy and i think we can also announce our next game after that which will be seven wonders duel so get your plays in of both those games on board game arena
0: spirit island is a modular player versus the game solo and cooperative game for one to four players Each game, players take on the role of a spirit working to scare off a colonial power whose exploration has recently brought them to the shores of your island. Alongside the indigenous people of the island, the Dahan, you will work to slow the spread of the invaders by generating fear among them, using your powers to destroy colonial explorers, towns, and cities while maintaining your spirit's presence in different regions of the island. To win, Players must achieve the victory condition of the current tear level, which features increasingly easy-to-achieve victory conditions. To advance the tear level, players need to increase the colonists' fear by playing cards that cause fear, destroying cities or towns directly, or working alongside the Tehan to do so. Simultaneously, players must avoid the spread of blight caused by the colonists who ravage the lands they're in. Blight is tracked by a limited token pool, and if the Blight pool ever runs out, sometimes caused by a chain reaction of Blight tokens spreading from region to region on the island, or if the Invader card deck, which dictates the Invader's actions by terrain type, ever runs out, or if the Dahan are ever eliminated from the island, the player loses the game immediately. To accomplish all of this, the player will play and collect new power cards, which come in two types, Weaker, minor power cards, and more powerful, major power cards. They each have an energy cost and set of elements that accompany their effect. Energy is a resource spirits accumulate each turn, and elements marked on each card combine to unlock a spirit's unique powers if certain thresholds of a combination of element types are present on a given turn. At the end of each turn, spirits always grow in power, allowing them to add presence to new regions on the island gain new cards, increase the number of cards they play in a turn, or increase their turn to turn energy gain. Spirit Island demands players balance the threat of a growing and powerful invading colonial force with trade-offs around the path of their spirit's growth while tackling short-term problems without letting long-term threats outrun the player or the spirit's ability to deal with them. Spirit Island's modular difficulty means the decision space can be increasingly constricted and tight as players push the limits of what difficulty they can tackle wielding their spirit's powers against the invaders. I hope that gave you a little bit better of a sense and Jake thank you for leading us in and our sloppy descent into spirit island somewhat led by me Um, but like we always like to do on the podcast let's get into characterizing the decision space and I think before we get into it we have to caveat it and really a lot of the games that we cover on the show Jake end up having mostly a similar decision space at least from game to game with some variability but I think to the most extent a game we've ever covered spirit island really is a modular decision space um, your decision space very much changes based on the spirit you're playing, the adversary you're playing with, the, the number of boards in play, depending on how many people are playing. Um, so there's a real different feel in terms of how the decision space could play out, though I think there's some overarching trends that I think remain true no matter what. Like the fact that you're going to feel some big pain.
1: Yes, I was going to say all that is true. And also, I think we can safely say that this is a game with an enormous decision space. Uh, Just the way the turns play out require you to map through so many sequences of things Mm. that are both calculable, uh, predictable, and potentially unknowable that you really end up it feels to me being able to pick your way through this game in almost infinite number of ways. And that's just on any given turn. I mean, and when you combine that together, and we'll talk more about why it feels like this, I think you end up with a game that has a decision space as large as any we've covered on this part podcast yet. Yeah, I, I would say the biggest.
0: Yeah, I, I was wondering if we were going to get into, is this the biggest decision space we've covered? And I I definitely agree. The breadth and depth of decisions on any given turn feels enormous. Um, and it's also a waxing decision space, right? Your spirit's growing as time goes on, giving you the ability to do more, make more decisions on a turn. Um, and you're getting more cards as you sort of are gaining more minor powers or giving up, making a trade-off, giving away to get a major power. Um That's just huge. Also, when you're presented with decisions, even in terms of getting cards, you're given a lot of choices, uh, which forces some really important strategic decisions in terms of how you're going to approach going into it. And there's so many things to think about with any given decision, whether it's the board state, the time in the game, um, what elements you have, what what path you've taken in terms of growing so far, what you need to do in the very next turn sometimes. Uh, So there's just so much to evaluate and think about. And that's even just playing with one board in a solo game. I think it can feel very overwhelming.
1: Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I think there's a big distinction here uh, between a game like this and a game like Praga, which we covered last week, that also offers a ton of different decisions. And I think the difference comes down to the fact that in Spirit Island, every single thing you do truly feels interwoven with, every subsequent decision or action in the game Um, in a pro in praga you know you might increase your production of gold and that was one of very many different options you had but that's kind of where it stops here you know the first choice of Mm. the turn uh you know if you're expanding your presence power and putting out presence somewhere on the board that's going to really fundamentally change the shape of your game. It's going to give you the ability to influence different parts of the board, uh, potentially uh, how threatened you're going to be to lose that presence, um, and, and in a way that just truly spirals out of control throughout the course of the game. And that's just one of many decisions that you're going to make on any turn. Does that make sense?
0: It completely makes sense. And I think in terms of a game, it's what's fascinating to me about Spirit Island Drake is how we've you've talked in the past about the clarity of a decision space, right? So like how clear is the given decision that you're supposed to make on a term versus how fuzzy is it? And to me There's so much because of the relationship between the decisions as the decision tree builds out over the course of the game, even though most information in the game is fairly known, you know, what's going to happen, for example, in different regions in the next three turns, you know, what the Dahan are going to do, it still manages to feel so fuzzy in some ways, just because of the sheer amount of actions, which I think is a really interesting shape for a game to have. Um, what maybe it would be helpful to be sort of talk about the three any sort of driving decisions that are on a player's mind for those who haven't played spirit island um just so they can be in our headspace of what we're trying to decide and i came up with three i'll be curious if you have any others at any given time i'm sort of thinking about threat level mitigation right so like can i afford to do i have to deal with the lands that are going to be ravaged in or can i stop a build take some momentum away from the colonists building up, creating more of a threat in the future. Um, How should I be growing is a driving decision. Should I be putting energy into putting presence on the board? Should I be gaining more cards? Which of the two tracks, depending on your spirit, should I be pulling presence token from? Do I want to be getting more energy? Do I want to be getting more card plays or uh, other element effects? And then also... Yeah, I need to take care of the board, but what about my my win condition? How am I, I going to be generating fear? What's the primary way that I'm going to get the terror level higher? Because if I don't do that fast enough, I'm just going to lose no matter what. Um, and I've definitely been in situations where I feel like I'm treading water and there's nothing that I can do besides like try to keep the board state stagnant. And that just feels awful, right? You're like defending in regions and you're like, oh no, here we go. I can last for five turns, but I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I
1: think that treading water in Spirit Island, though, and maybe we'll get into this in another part of the conversation, is winning. Mm. Because the natural arc of this game is that your spirit that you're playing as is growing in power, growing in influence over the course of the game. So what I think you're really trying to do is manage the curve of your spirit's power in comparison to the curve of... Uh, the growth and power of the adversary you're playing against. So, treading water, I think, is is just to me, I think a big part of this game is just surviving the early mm. game, especially on higher difficulty levels. And I'm very far from an expert on this game. So, this is just my experience. And it feels so it feels though, whenever I'm treading water, I'm doing good because at a certain point, my spirit is going to start to snowball. Um, and the games I lose, which are many, it feels like is just as often because I'm, I'm overtaken in the early game. I don't do enough of that mitigation to allow my spirit the time it needs to like really become established and grow because once you, you know, have the energy you're unlocking all the different icons that give you bonus powers. You can just do so much, uh, in a single turn, once you're fully online, um, that it just seems like it's 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 a, a matter of getting to that turn or turns in many cases. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's a great summary of it. And it's interesting because you really do have agency over how you shape the threat that you need to be able to overcome with your spirit, right? Like you have so much agency in which regions you choose to target, depending on what spirit you're playing. Obviously there's some uh, spirits that make that a little bit more difficult, like Ocean's Hungry Grasp, where you can only have presence in coastal regions and the ocean, which is a really interesting twist. Um, one of my favorite Spirits to play so far, just because it's so off the wall. Um, but for the most part, you have real agency in shaping what threat you're going to face in your powered up version if you make it there. Um and i think that's a really interesting aspect of the game's decision space as well.
1: We should probably just give the caveat here like we did in the magic the gathering episode that there is literally an exception to every single thing we say. So it is true that, you know, some spirits don't operate that way. Some spirits have a totally different curve where they may they start off really strong off the bat and then, you know, get weaker or whatever. Um so just know that yeah, we're not ever going to be talking universally in spirit island because this really is as much of as it is a game an incredible game it's a system uh that any part of that system can and has been tweaked by the designer either through the adversaries you're fighting against the spirits you're playing as um, scenarios if you choose to use them uh that and, and no matter what it's tweaked it's just creates a totally new and rich decision space to explore which is just why I think you know this game really is such an amazing achievement just from a game design perspective
0: yeah absolutely I when you say that Jake the thing that comes to my mind is um bringer of dreams and nightmares the spirit in the base game that you can't actually destroy cities and towns you when you if you would destroy them you just generate fear and push them around it's just a fundamentally such a different game and decision space that you're working in Um, and i think that's probably like you're saying one of the reasons why i feel like it's this triumph and you do as well just because the breadth and the ways in which the system can be pushed without breaking seem innumerable. And I'm really curious. So I have this characterization just to sort of continue to advance the conversation. Um, I didn't know a ton of what to expect going to Spirit Island. And upon reading the rulebook and learning the rules, I was really shocked to see that in some ways, it kind of feels like pandemic two. Um, like the systems at play and the way that blight spreads uh, is so reminiscent of the diseases. Um, obviously, there's a lot of differences with the way that you're moving around the board, the way that regions work, um, even the way that, you know, the colonial powers work versus the the way that disease is of the board, though they're both deck driven. Um I, I think in some ways there's this direct line between Pandemic and Spirit Island. Obviously they're very different games. Um but I think if every mega hit like Pandemic could have a follow-up like Spirit Island, there'd be this there'd be an even more incredible board game space. What do you think of that characterization?
1: I I think it's really smart. It makes a ton of sense and yeah these are different games but there's certainly a through thread there you know and and if you say that Spirit Island is in the pandemic archetype of cooperative game yeah there's I don't think there's much to disagree with there
0: the other thing that struck me about this game and how it has positioned itself is the environmental theming mixed with the mechanical theming i feel like it's so effective That when I first started playing it, it made the idea of damage and the way it represents damage feel so tired in most games and so evocative here, where damage means something more than just like health points being depleted, right? Like your ability to deal damage is actually this really descriptive uh, effect, which is to create fear among the colonists and your true goal is not to deal you know, 20 damage points to the colonists, but just to actually create so much fear that you scare them off the island entirely, um, which feels, it, it imbues all of your actions with this like really meaningful, um, I think thematic tie-in in a way that, oh, you just have to do 24 damage to the colonists and then they'll then you beat them. Um, I think that that for me was the first way in which Spear Island's decision space hit me and made me realize that there was even more under the hood of this game than I thought there would be.
1: I think that the environmental theming in this game and the way it ties into the mechanics of the game for the mechanical theming is, for me, the pinnacle Mm -hmm. of what I've experienced in board games. I think that the environmental theming is done so well here. And the thing that I like the most about it is a lot of times it feels like it's... Deeming, I'm trying to think the right way to, to, to put this, but it gives you just enough information. And, and the information it gives you is really well written. It's beautifully written. Like when you talk about the descriptions of the spirits, their background, their story, uh, even just the names of the spirits, right? You have rivers, surges, in sunlight and sunlights, and rampant spread of green in the base game. Is totally evocative naming, which could have so easily been, you know, mighty forest or ferocious river, what, oh yeah, right, water spirit. And that would not have provided the same thing. So I think the text that is there in this game is really smart, uh, really intentionally evocative of the theme. And also they don't overdo it. So they aren't so prescriptive with it by, you know, providing too much text. Uh, And what that does is this, where the theming is absent, it allows you to fill it in yourself. And I think that is like what really makes this environmental theme stick and be so uh, engaging to play around in. Yeah,
0: I completely agree. Um, it, I guess on the topic of theme too, I was, there's so much of board games. I feel like this is an important part of the conversation that I want to speak to now while we're on theme. Um, there's so many board games where col- colonial themes are at the forefront. So I was really predisposed by what, what I talked about in my synopsis of like coming into Spirit Island and sort of being averse to it and sort of thinking, uh, this probably isn't going to be presented very well. I'm sure that this theme isn't going to be handled as with as much nuance as I wish it was, indigenous populations are generally not represented super well in board games. Um, and I just sort of kept it at arm's length. Actually, Jake, you had to sort of convince me, like, no, you'll like this game. That's covered on the show. Please, that's covered on the show. And you've been talking about it since around episode 10. Um, and finally, I think you wore me down a little bit. And I was like, okay, let's do it. Let's cover it. Um, I feel I feel ready to get into it. And When I played, because of how effective the theming is and the relationship of the Dahan mechanically to your spirit, um, I think it's one of, in my view, sort of like one of the most loving presentations of an indigenous community where they have real agency, but the power juxtaposition to like, a colonial force is honest in the sort of like fantasy world of spirit Island. And then your relationship as a spirit to the Dahan is really interesting where you sort of, you work together, but you aren't this like magical stand-in for the indigenous people. Um, So it means you get to actually have a relationship with these pieces. It doesn't mean like make it feel like you're controlling them purely, but it makes it feel like you're working together. They're, they're vulnerable, but powerful. Um, I don't know, there's so many ways in which, I guess as we're doing this little section on theming, the mechanical theming of the game is so strong in a way that evokes, um, I think, sort of expectations or simulates expectations in a way, um, but also begins to play with your emotions in a way that's really effective in terms of the decision space, not in a way that you ever feel like you have to compromise in terms of making the right decisions in a game, but in a way that amplifies the impact of making the right decisions in the game.
1: I think very well said. Uh, And I I think the mechanical theming in particular, where that marriage is so strong between the mechanical theming and the environmental theming is the mechanical theming is like continuing that conversation started right where the ellipses are in the narrative. Mm. The way the mechanics come in is what allows you in your own, you know, theater of the mind to continue the story and understand intuitively what's happening in the world when, you know, a a land is ravaged and you have to remove two Dahan from the board. Uh, You know, when, when a land is ravaged and, and blight is, is starting at the city and being spread over across, you know, this once uh, pristine land or mostly pristine land. Um, Yeah. I think, I, I completely agree with what you're saying and I, I don't feel, you know, qualified to say, okay, this is, and, and I know you're not saying like that this is a perfectly done representation sure. or like, this is the best answer to colonialism as a theme in board game. Definitely. um Or this is not at all problematic. You know, I would, I don't feel qualified to say those things, but what I can say from my experience is it is, really refreshing uh, both in terms of the way the theme is treated and presented, but also to have, it's just refreshing to have different agency in mm. this tired, you know, theme, right? There's so many games where you're the colonizer, you know, you're coming and developing a land and to, to be able to play out that same theme from a different perspective and a different point of agency is really fun. You know, it's, it's fun and it it feels like a good step for me.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I want to just make sure to echo your sentiment as well, that I'm definitely don't consider myself qualified to make statements uh, like this is the right way to do anything. Uh, But that I agree, it feels refreshing. And I I really enjoyed. The, I enjoy the juxtaposition of sort of this powerful colonial force because they should feel powerful, but also a good powerful force in terms of your spirit and what does it mean to how do both of these entities relate to the Dahan um, and how do they re- relate to each of these entities? I think it's it's very interesting and at least gives you at least gives me food for thought. But I think let's use this. We are talking about mechanical theming as an opportunity to pivot into the mechanical theming of the game somewhat. So maybe we could start with the card system overall and also the element system and how that ties into it. I feel like if you're going to start anywhere in Spirit Island, which is so hard to do because it's such a big game, this might be a good place to start because it kind of feeds into everything you can and might do um, and some of the decisions you can and might make based on where you start as a Spirit and where you want to go. So do you want to sort of kick off that conversation, Jake?
1: yeah and i think the cards are it's it's hard to say you know that any one part of this game is the heart of the game because of how interwoven and connected everything is but it certainly is a centering point around my decision making when it comes Mm -hmm. to taking a turn in the game it you know even before deciding you know how i want my presence to grow, which is the actual first choice in the game, I'm always consulting the cards and actions that I have available or potentially available to me, and then going back and deciding, okay, what of these presence growing options is going to, you know, give me the most ability to uh, have impact with these cards. Um, So the, the way the cards work is pretty complicated i think that's also where a lot of the complexity in the game comes because uh there are fast cards which thematically are, are are abilities that your spirit has to influence the board right away before the adversaries take actions or it could be a slow power which happens after uh the adversaries take their actions which is thematically in the game like 20 years later <laughs> or something you know it's some amount of time later uh, because they've been able to build whole entire cities in the meantime uh which really is you know another way that the game the the mechanical theme is sort of reinforcing the environmental theme, everything that's happening makes sense in that way, but on top of that uh timing of the cards uh there's also elements that you had mentioned the elements give uh are accumulated throughout the cards you play or or possibly given by your spirit itself. Uh, And if elements are accumulated in the right number uh, and right sequence uh, for your particular spirit, that may give you the ability to do some power. So that's another thing you're factoring in. And then on top of all that, every single power, uh, which is the cards in the game, also has restraints upon... Uh, where it can be played from, uh, where it can target. So it might say you know, you can target any space on the board or it might say you can target a space on the board two spaces away from, up to two spaces away from where you have presence or it has to be in a space that you have presence or it has to be uh, near a space in which you have two presence tokens which makes it a a spiritual site. So there are a lot of working moving parts on each of these cards which is another thing that adds like fuzziness to decision making because it's not as easy as i want to play these two cards Uh, a lot of times it's like okay oh and and each card also has a different cost in terms of energy or essence to play so you know you really have to think hard about which things am i going to be able to play Uh, if I take various different actions on my turn, will the timing allow me to do what I need it to do? And it gets really, really complicated in in a bandwidth testing way very quickly.
0: That was really great, Jake. I think you just summarized the whole system really effectively. And I think that we would be remiss. One thing that I realized, sorry, I'm like, fumbling because there's so many directions we could go in this conversation. But one of my favorite aspects of Spirit Island is the sort of emergent gameplay that comes out of the system that I think is the biggest win of this system and the decisions that you get to make is it the way in which the fast effects um, and the slow effects combine with the adversaries making their movements, where, whether it's you know, exploring, building, or ravaging, um, you sort of bookend their actions. So you have this natural tempo of the game, which is like, I go, they go, I go. But then when you connect another turn to that, if you're going fast again, you also get to go again. But let's say you you know, you know have a turn where you play slow, uh, you play all slow effects, then the adversaries go, and then you don't play any faster, excuse me, the adversaries go, you play all slow effects, then you don't play fast effects, then the adversaries go again, So, Or if you played fast effects following slow effects, then you get to connect your two turns together in a meaningful way. So I think the way in which your relationship plays out in terms of action to the adversaries who are always acting on a set rhythm, right? They're going in between your sort of two potential turns, depending on what you play, is really interesting and gives the game overall this natural ebb and flow, where if you focus all of your effects fast or all of your effects slow, You're sort of choosing where you're putting your power. And as your spirit grows, you're potentially gaining more slow effects or more fast effects. And that's going to change your relationship to this invader cards that come out uh, and the stages that they are right where you have this ability to deal with coming threats quicker or more slowly. And how much do you have to prepare for the threats that are coming versus can I address immediate threats now I think that this system is just so brilliant and that's not to say nothing of the element system um, which is I feel like is so clever because earlier on when you're playing at lower difficulties it sort of allows you to build your spirit uh, in lots of different ways. you might supplement their weakness with a card that really sort of fills in what is a gap in your spirit's potential but i feel like at higher difficulties against stronger adversaries you kind of end up being forced because you want to utilize those unique powers from collecting elements uh, that match what your spirit needs and the way those cards are designed generally makes it such that you're amplifying your spirit's strength in an interesting way Um, so that sort of shifts the decision space Uh, and it's just a it's a clever way to sort of have this energy system that isn't restrictive in a way that something like Magic the Gathering's energy system is, but is instead open and allows you to make hard decisions or make potential huge trade-offs so long as you can prove that it's viable in your gameplay.
1: The way the elements work, I think, is interesting and also kind of unintuitive in a way where you can use, um, you know... what like elements that you generate on your turn are not consumed Mm. um so, so i just think you know it's it's a little bit of a tricky thing to manage that feels very different than the way you know energy is typically used uh you know or research is typically used up in a game uh so i i think it's cool i do think it's a place where it can be a little bit like you know it's just another thing that's really going to trip you up and put you through your paces, especially in those first plays as you're trying to manage um, what you're doing. But once you become familiar with it, I think it's actually uh, a really good signpost to you Mm -hmm. to go back to our other conversation on signposting about, you know, how best to play the spirit. Um, Because if you're neglecting that aspect, you're really neglecting like the fundamental thing that makes your spirit unique and strong and and kind of the way that you get to break the rules, um, in, in some very important ways. Uh, so yeah, I I think, you know, it's, it's tough. There's always going to be trade-offs, right? Because do you play the card that gives you the element you need to take an ability, even though that card isn't giving you the maximum effect now, sometimes I'll find myself playing a card, even if I can't use, Right. The uh, ability for any meaningful effect at all, just because I know that's going to enable uh, when I'm, you know, give me the elements I need to do something else. Um, and, you know, this game is just full of tradeoffs in uh, each of those, an interesting decision in and of itself.
0: It's amazing, too, the way in which the you're sort of saying, Jake, like that you'll just play a card or think about a sequence of cards being played even. Like say you need the effect of a certain card this turn, but you know you actually need the elemental, the sort of bonus effect that you will get from playing that card next turn uh, and getting unlocking some threshold. It, it creates such um, complex webs of sequencing and trade-offs that you have to think about of is it gonna be better for me to address this build threat now with this combination of cards, which I could do directly, or do I need to deal with this ravage in this slightly worse way so I can have these stronger bonus effects next turn by playing this card just for its elements ignoring its effect and unlocking this extra thing like sort of the spirit uh that I really like who does this is the vital strength of earth his gift of strength where the more elements you amass you just get to play a card a second time of potentially uh stronger and stronger energy thresholds and if you're Using a six energy cost card twice, that's such a huge boon that you start to care less about what some of the other effects you're playing. Um, And I think that that just is such an interesting way in which the decisions play out. And then this ties into how your spirits grow, right? Some spirits will give you elements just for pulling presents off the board and putting them there. So is it better to have one one more energy or one more card play this turn? Or is it more valuable to just have a permanent uh, moon element? That is going to add up because you're going to need those if you're going to get to the second or third tier consistently of those effects and figuring out what the right strategy is for a specific adversary and the cards that you draw into just no two games of Spirit Island feel different with even with any one spirit. To me, yet. maybe there's experts out there who can really shape, shape the randomness of gaining new cards and finding what they need to kind of have a similar feel. But to me, as someone who I'm I'm guessing, I'm more of an intermediate, probably a beginner player, let's be honest, uh, even though I've played it like 30, 40 times now. Um I feel like no game really feels the same despite pushing up against that random card draw. And maybe this is a good time to talk about that system, which is one of the really two ways that in the base game you get fuzziness in the system is gaining new cards. You get, when you gain a new minor, uh, a new card, you get, you get to choose, okay, do I want a major or a minor effect? A branching decision. Uh, Generally, the minor cards are really good because you can have any amount of them and they're, usually zero or one energy to play. So early on in the game, they're quite valuable. But later on, those major cards, the effects are so strong that you have to give up a whole guard to get them, which creates those interesting decisions. And I think that is another uh, moment, Jake, where the game is sort of asking you, what phase of the game are you in? Is it the mid game? Is it the early game? Is it the late game? Um, And what direction do you want to go? To
1: comment on one thing, you I think there are three ways the game provides fuzziness that I can think of. Um, There's the cards you're adding where the uh, adversary is going to explore next. And then also the fear cards that you're generating, uh, which are going, you know, I I think there are something like 13 or 14 fear cards in the base game. You're only going to be using a subset of them when you achieve one. That's going to give you some random positive effects. So so there are, you know, between those three things, there's definitely a decent amount of fuzziness, Mm -hmm. though it still feels like more of the information like you're always grappling so much with known information um, that it doesn't, I would say it doesn't feel too random at all. Um, but yeah. So to comment on the card plays, I, I do think that is a great cent, uh, you know, another good trade off in the game. Also different spirits of course are going to want to take different strategies with that. I think some of the spirits that generate power much more energy uh, early in the game, like the bringer of dreams and nightmares can afford to take a a major power earlier on in the game and be able to use it, which sometimes can be a very worthwhile trade-off because of how powerful these effects can be um, and how provocative and thematic. uh, When you, when you talk about the narrative, that emerges throughout your play. I think a lot of it is shaped by these cards. Mm. Uh, I am recalling specifically one game I played as, uh, ocean's hungry grasp. And I managed to, you know, draw out of the 30 card, major power deck, the tsunami card. And I was just like, okay, this is so perfect that I'm like this ocean now casting this, like devastating tsunami for the win, you know, against the adversary, uh, and, and, you know, there's these any any spirit could technically use the tsunami card, but with the elements and, and with the way spirits play, uh, different power cards are going to be better suited towards be- different spirits and different builds. Um, so, you know, it's it's a really fun way that diversifies the game and also is one of many ways in which you feel this arc of growth with your spirit over the course of the game you feel that snowball snowballing and powering up and it culminates with this huge major power play that you've been building to that just gives you a huge uh, swing in the game
0: uh it's a great arc i think part of the strength of that too that i just want to hammer home is it's so the design is so gentle it just sort of pushes you in the direction by using the element system to direct you towards that decision right of being oceans well maybe with oceans hungry grass and tsunami it's pretty heavy-handed like that card's just so good for you but with some of the other ones using the elements and driving you towards taking the cards that feel thematic to the environment that our game probably is it just ends up being a win so often that that it makes the decision space uh, it enables the player to feel clever in a way that a game that was more heavy handed uh, and more restrictive wouldn't be. It incentivizes good choices without forcing or dictating choices in a way that I think is a win for the game and a win for the people playing it.
1: Yeah, it's It signposts it really yeah. nicely because in that particular game, I didn't know that Tsunami was a card that existed but because the Ocean's Hunger Grasp has these powers that are wanting to pull uh, settlements and buildings towards the ocean already that's part of the gameplay the ocean can drag people in and, and and drown them to get rid of them i had cultivated a board state that was perfect to get this maximum effect out of the tsunami without even knowing it was there and i think that is uh credit to you know just a really well developed game Definitely.
0: What do you, so speaking to that, another system that plays into that that I think is so strong is the growth system. So, this is one of my favorite parts of the game, and I don't think that should be a surprise to anyone who uh, has played the game itself because it's just fun to uncover a little piece of your board. Basically, the way this works is every spirit has two, maybe there's spirits who break this rule, but generally, spirits have two tracks, uh, and you put your presence tokens on different spaces on these tracks and every turn you're choosing from a menu of ways that your spirit can grow and every spirit can grow in different ways generally there are spirits who are going to every spirit is going to be able to pull all the cards they've previously played back Uh, they're going to have ways to add presence to the board and they're going to have effects that gain new cards and then some and then also potentially gaining energy just from choosing that growth effect. And then they're gonna have a unique combination of these effects in a menu of options that they can pick. And then once they pick those options, they can remove presence if they've placed chosen effect that allows them to place presence from one of two different tracks that's going to give them additional effects for doing that so this is really where i think that sentence alone should highlight (laughs) the sort of connectedness of the decisions you're making in this game
1: and that it's a heavy
0: game and that it's a heavy game and also it's just so fun jake like putting presence on the board always feels good and removing presence from your player board always feels good and i think that it is watching those spaces become uncovered and seeing how you are simultaneously making the board state better for you and making your, your player board is imbuing with you with that strength from uncovering. It just feels good. I love that the rhythm of this game, the decision space of this game always has this refrain that brings you back from the board to grow um, it, and to, it, to make a decision.
1: I'd say it feels good, but also, and <laughs> and critically, feels terrible <laughs> because no matter what you pick, you want to do everything. Yep. You know, you want to be gaining, putting presents out on the board. But you also want to be reclaiming your cards from your discard pile that you've already previously used. And you know, in so many times in this game, you need to do both. Like, I have to put out a <laughs> presence to get the energy I need to play the two cards in my hand uh, or, you know, the two cards I need to to be able to shape the board the way that I is maximum benefit to me. But I also need to like get one of the cards back from my graveyard because, or discard vial because that's the only one that I can, you know, defend in this land that's going to be ravaged, that has two Dahan in it that I absolutely critically need to protect. Um, and so it's just the trade-offs here are just, devastating Uh, you know and whatever you do it feels powerful but you also are just giving up so much with whatever you choose not to do on any
0: given turn of growing your presence this system is so sneaky too because this system and the element system are two of the primary ways that the game invites you to and encourages you to and in some ways forces you to play not your best cards at turns later in the game right like because you can't always have access to your best cards because of needing to do everything, needing to take turns where you're adding presence or growing, it justifies having cards that are significantly stronger and significantly weaker given the stage in the game and gives you a reason to play them when it would otherwise be a suboptimal in a way that makes the decision space just simply more interesting. And it sort of solves that fundamental problem of okay i got better cards why don't i just always play the better cards in a way that makes the decision space more interesting and doesn't feel like forced or like a cudgel in a way that it kind of just like fades to the background and feels like a meaningful part of the puzzle in a way that i really admire about the design
1: yeah and i think this is also one of the ways in which the game is able to the game system is able to create such tremendous diversity amongst the spirits um and you know, all the spirits have different choices. But the rampant spread of green, for instance, is, is a spirit that's constantly putting out presence on the board, which simulates you know the that growth, right? Uh, so well um, of of overgrowth, just and taking over land. So they get to do an additional presence, and, and then pick something else on every single turn, which just fundamentally alters the game in a way that feels incredibly thematic to that spirit through mechanical theme alone. It does, you know, there's no environmental theme needs to come into that. And you already know that like what's happening and the, uh, I can't remember what the name of the, of the stone one that you mentioned early,
0: that vital strength of earth.
1: Right. That one, on the other hand, is like really slow to get going because each thing you uncover gives you only a really tiny little incremental benefit until at later in the game when all of a sudden, each thing you're uncovering at the end of the game is giving you these huge massive benefits and you know, it just gives a completely different feel and a different arc to how you have to play that spirit to be effective in the game. Um, so you know, it's just, such a smart game design feature uh, that allows for just infinite
0: exploration, I think. It gave me so much joy to name another example on the thread that you are, Jake. When I played River Surges in Sunlight for the first time and I got to add New Dahan to the board because River is being sort of the, the place in which civilizations generally build. Of course, River ends up being the spirit who gets to have that really rare effect of adding and creating New Dahan on the board it just that felt like such a thematic win and also so joyous to have these new allies do you want to talk about the Dahan for a minute Jake um sure yeah yeah
1: so the Dahan are essentially the you know native people that that start on the land when uh the adversary shows up to begin colonizing and they're these little wooden tokens that look like mushrooms um and and they're interesting in the way that like everything else, the way that your spirit interacts with the dahan are is going to be fundamentally different. Uh, you know, some can really sh- manipulate them a lot by pushing them and pulling them around the land uh, to to create essentially an army of uh, of dahan that are able to raid these uh, the, your adversaries' towns that they're creating and and wipe them out. And again, like purely through mechanical theming, do you come up with this idea of what's happening, you know, nowhere in the game does it say army of Dahan. (laughs) It's just what has um, this emerging narrative through the gameplay alone. Um, But I just think they're a wonderfully interesting feature because the way they work is they don't, they, they will, they don't attack the uh, villagers on their own, but if they're attacked, so if they're in a land that is being ravaged, uh, any surviving Dahan after the adversary deals damage first will fight back. And that is a critical, critical uh, rule in the game that players have to be taking advantage of if they want to succeed, even at the lower levels of the game. And and you can, um, you know, again, there's infinite ways to get you can play with that simple mechanic to create Rich and interesting gameplay, but, you know, commonly that means spirits will be able to defend a region so that the Dahan don't take damage. And then they're able to fight back with a full force and and do a ton of damage uh, to the uh, adversaries, buildings and and uh, explorers that are
0: there. I think because, especially early on, generally the Dahan, if they're in groups, have so much more potential to actually damage your adversaries than you do, depending on the spirit you're playing, it creates this interesting puzzle where early on you're trying to, especially before the adversaries build up too much, if there's just an explorer in a region, the Dahan are much stronger than them, and they can really clean up areas, or if there's just a town rather than a city, Dahan can strike back. So it leads to these moments where there's these interesting trade-offs. And I think depending on your spirit, you never feel, or I didn't always feel like I was telling the Dahan what to do rather than really working alongside them. Like you're saying, Jake, some of them do have, some spirits have more of an ability to push spirits or pull spirits into different, uh, pull Dahan into different regions. And those, you kind of feel like you're controlling them more. But other spirits, they sort of exist and you're working around them and finding the way to sort of best supplement their potential alongside your goals because you both have the same goal of driving the adversaries out. And um, I think,
1: I think that again, it is a smart treatment of the theme that you are able to pull and push the Han, uh, which really restricts how you're able to move them. So, you, you know, in a different, it, it could have easily been this power gives you move three, the Han, where you can march the han around the board uh, and really control them. But, through the me- mechanisms of the game, you really can never do that. Yeah, uh, all, all you can do is pick a region and and you know pull Dahan from there to a different one that's you know one space away, or to push uh, Dahan. You know, maybe you push two into one and two into other. You push them all together. There are of course exceptions to this through different powers in the game and probably different spirits as well. But at its core, right. That restriction, uh, inherent restriction to moving to Han, does it, it makes it so there is a separation between your spirit and the Dahan. You don't have agency over Dahan. You are truly
0: working with them in order to win the game. What's so interesting about it too is the way the damage plays out. I think the intuitive way that the mechanism could play out is like, okay, they're going to damage each other at the same time. Like the Dahan will strike at the same time as the adversaries. That's a way that I think a lesser game would have implemented it. And that's not how this happens uh, in this decision space. And I think that's an example of good, uh, in, an example of an intuitive trade-off in how the rules work, adding complexity that increases the decision space because there's, Dahan are really valuable. They, they represent so much potential uh, agency in the land and they don't come back. So if you find yourself in a position where you're make, taking a turn where Dahan will be wiped from the board and destroyed, it feels awful. It just truly feels awful. The first time, or yeah, I think it was the very first time
1: I was playing this game and I was, you know, had some Dahan get wiped out and I was thought, man, that sucks. How do I get some more? (laughs) And I'm like looking through the rule book for like how to get more Dahan, you know, and and there is no way. Yeah, And, you know, and again, that's just, and and, in that moment, it was like this kind of like devastating moment where it, you know, without beating you over the head with you know a message of colonialism is bad you know you're you are through the mechanisms and theme of the game kind of grappling with this like oh right like so many of these native populations you know in in where i live and uh are are wiped out and it's terrible so of course in this game they don't come back
0: yeah which is like you said it's a way to communicate sort of how devastating that is through, through gameplay, which is really interesting. Um, or at least have been like, fu- in the case of our country, have been like fundamentally reshaped as how these communities exist with relationship to the colonial power that we're both citizens of. And
1: ultimately. it also, I think speaks to the, you know, and again, right. Not to say like, this is the best way to understand this topic or, you know, now I understand. Sure. It better or whatever, but it it, it is like, a way in which I think it does speak to the power of gaming that like to experience that moment, right. Of like understanding like, okay, yeah, the Dahan don't come back. And now, and like, you know, this is why filling in that gap for myself is fundamentally a different type of learning Mm. than you get from a textbook. Right. Yep. Like you can, you can, you can read a figure and say like this many people died and it's a tragedy and you can, recognize that and grapple with it but to like experience something in, in a game like this and see the impact and 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 you know the loss it's just it's just different way of understanding something and i think that's really cool yeah i i really appreciate the game for you know giving
0: me that little experience And, no, I I completely agree, and I think it's one of the ways in which my expectations of this premise, probably not playing out well, were most subverted, and it has led to me enjoying the game even more than I ever imagined, Uh, to the point where I know it's a game that I'm going to be playing and wanting to share with people for a long time to come. Another reason for that is the way, just the sheer amount of depth in the game. So one of the ways that, that plays out, we've talked about the spirits and I want to, I think, to close our conversation, Jake, I wanted to have like a sh- brief discussion of the spirits. But before that, let's talk about the adversaries, because I think you and I have been talking sort of casually on and off. We try not to discuss the games we are going to talk on the show too much so we don't get into it. But we have talked a little bit about the adversary cards, because I think both of us feel like the potential to get beaten up by the adversaries is very real here. Um and I think that we'd be remiss not to have some conversation of real world colonial adversaries being in this fantasy uh, cooperative solo game and also just how powerful and horrible they can become, <laughs> which is very powerful and horrible.
1: Yeah, there is an interesting kind of dance that the actual rule book does, right? And, and kind of being very clear that this is... They're- game of spirit island is like creating its own universe right yeah yeah its own fiction of of spirits and it's not you know it is you know there's clearly influences uh probably you know from real indigenous communities and theology and uh what have you but it's not taken one for one at all and yet (laughs) you have the adversary of england uh also in the game is it's like okay well i know that england is real so there is you know it's kind of a duality there uh where right that to, to bring in real adversaries into this fantasy world is an interesting choice and i think an, an effective one
0: i think it's really effective and i think we've talked about how nuanced so many of the decisions in terms of game design and game presentation are i think it decided the designer or decided i'm going to use one heavy-handed punch and this is definitely where it was placed and it is smart and effective. And the theming, the environmental theming of some of them are really clever too. Like Sweden, one of the base game adversaries where um, the mechanically when you're playing against Prussia or England, you might have certain regions within your island that you let just get totally built up with towns and cities. Because, okay, at least if that's going to be their stronghold on the island and if I can keep them kind of in that area, I can deal with that problem. But if you let that happen with Sweden, they have heavy mining in effect where if they do six or more damage, they're going to add double blight to the island. So it completely changes the decision space of the game and how different spirits, their potential to deal with that, um, uh, that specific threat of Sweden, if you're playing on that difficulty level, changes how you might build that spirit generally. And I think that this and the adversary system is maybe too modular for some people. I think some people might just sort of say, tell me how to play the game and make it straightforward and simple. Whereas I think I really enjoy that it lets me really tailor how difficult the system is and how much, while also holding the stick really high. I think Jake, you and I have looked at some of the people in our Discord, like Inder, who has a spreadsheet of sort of every adversary in the game, every spirit of the game, and what difficulty level they've beaten them on solo, uh, trying to get as many to difficulty six as possible. And I'm sort of impressed that some of this is possible just because yeah. I'm at the point in the game where Seriously. like... Yeah, like beating an uh, adversary on difficulty four feels like a big accomplishment in a lot of cases to me. Um, I feel
1: as though I'm an underdog always. on, in, on adver- adversary level three yeah. or higher. If yeah. I think I'm probably not winning 50% of those yet. And Indur said today in our discord that we were discussing it, that an experienced player is probably 70% win rate on difficulty six with most spirits. And, and, and there are some combinations that are near impossible or, or much harder than that, but that really, you know, I, I, you know, I sometimes maybe give myself too much credit as somebody who can really like <laughs> understand games well and quickly. And, you know, but like, I feel like that's something that I'm pretty good at. And to realize that there's just so much to more to learn and understand about this game far and above where I'm at, you know, 20, 30 plays in, uh, is really hard for me. Like, I, I believe Ender, but it's hard to believe.
0: <laughs> I hear you. And I feel like a big part of that, Jake, is you're so good at generally sitting back and understanding game systems. But because so much of Spirit Island is the interaction of multiple systems, and sort of the emergent consequences of all those systems coming together. It's so much more difficult for you to just sort of sit down and grok it in a way that you can grok a Feld game or like grok Arnak and like how the trading works, because it feels it feels more alive as a little puzzle game than than other games might feel. And for me, that's the win of Spirit Island is that it does feel like this little emergent system that I'm interacting with, not necessarily this little game that I'm con- controlling.
1: Yeah. And and it's yeah. Some people are going to like it, some people are not going to like it for this, but the modular nature of the game, you know, I think the rulebook gives you different ideas of what could be level 1 difficulty playing with, you know, nothing but the the base game all the way up to you know, difficulty like twelve or fifteen or something, because different spirits interacting with different adversaries. Some will be better than others. Each adversary has six levels of difficulty. In and of itself, you could combine uh, adversaries with different scenarios that the game also comes with. Though I think most people, uh, my understanding is most people uh, choose not to play with those as much as 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 just against the adversaries. But still, you know, another variability, um, you know, just with the base game alone and and the eight spirits, I think it's eight, however many it comes with. And the three adversaries is I, you know, I can think that's all I own physically. And it's hard to, for me to imagine get ever getting to a point where I feel like I've just like really played this out. You know, I know how all these different things interact, um, that doesn't mean I don't want to play with expansion stuff just to try different different uh, spirits and different adversaries. There are still tons in the big expansions and the promo pack Two that I've never had the opportunity to play. Um, so it doesn't mean I don't want to try those out because I really do. I'd be excited to play them if given the chance, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> the base game itself isn't almost infinite in its replayability.
0: And this is to say nothing of like, we've mostly been having this conversation of the perspective of like the decision space of playing a solo game with one board. And that's like now the combination of the spirits interacting with specific adversaries. And that's that sort of infinite depth. Have you
1: played played any games with two spirits where you're
0: trying to duel? Yeah, two-handed solo. It's so tough. There's so much to think about. Yeah, I tried it. I tried it twice and just got
1: absolutely whipped and just felt like, I think a lot of people prefer playing this way. Yeah. Um, but for me and my brain, it was too much. Like the, it, the even playing one spirit feels like too much. <laughs> a Definitely. Lot of the
0: time. No, I totally agree. And it's funny, hearkening back to Pandemic, that was a game where the decision space made it, I wanted to play, I would three-handed, you know, I'd play with three different, hands of cards and i really enjoyed sort of having three different pawns on the board when i was playing that solo and here i'm like nah take all of that away give me one board one spirit let me see what i can do um uh, but to close it out jake what are what are maybe your sort of two favorite spirits to play from the base game i think my two
1: favorite spirits my, my number one overall spirit that i've played the most games with is the thunder speaker mm. uh this is the one that i really love it's uh Backstory, yeah, Uh, something like the spirit was trapped in in the cliffs for eons, and I'm you know I'm recalling this from memory. I haven't read this a long time, and and somehow the Dahan people helped it to escape. And as homage and thanks for that, it now looks has like taken on the presence of a humanoid looking creature where almost all the other ones are, are more like aspects of nature uh and its abilities all interact with the Dahan in really profound ways so it's one that you know you can really leverage the Dahan to their maximum ability and it's so fun creating these giant a giant swarm of Dahan and sending them in to take out you know massive just wreak total havoc on the adversaries uh It's a really satisfying game way to play the game. I think it's uh, also like a very strong spirit. So it's one I've had a lot of success with too, compared to some of the others, which maybe aren't as intuitive to me. What's one of yours? And I'll do my second.
0: I really love Vital Strength of the Earth, um, mostly because I love the ability to natively, if I stack presence into areas to have defend there, I think that creates a really interesting puzzle for the game of sort of, is it worth it to concentrate my presence in a given area to have that defensive ability um, and the doubling effect is really fun um I also like the tension of sort of can can I build up fast enough uh, with this really slow spirit to get there yeah my my
1: other favorite one I probably played with rivers yeah. surges in sunlight the second most um it's a really fun one too but the one i actually want to highlight is the bringer of dreams and nightmares it's one i've been using a lot recently kind of for the first time because i was it's it's really the one in the base game that i haven't touched nearly as much as the other ones prior to us deciding to cover this game so i wanted to explore it and uh it is crazy how fundamentally different it plays um Versus the other spirits, and that it can't do any damage on its own. Um, instead, it generates fear and kind of shoves the buildings around. So, really, the only way I've found that you can win is by churning all the way through the fear deck to get that final victory condition. Um, and it's, you know, reading it, it just seems like it's going to be so weak, and knowing how challenging the game is against an adversary like Prussia that's just generating tons of buildings like as so fast out on the board it seemed impossible um but you know i i was i've been playing with it starting to get some wins with it realizing the tr- tricks and strategies and and kind of growing in my understanding of it which is what this game allows that is so fun to me um and and now it's probably one of my favorite ones just because it's so different and it's really interesting
0: I love that Spirit Island has turned you into a Johnny player where you're like not worried about optimizing, but instead worried about like this really cool alternate wind condition in some ways. I think that's so cool. I also really like that one just because when I first read it, I was just agog of like, what? How do people, how could you do this? How is this possible? I think my other favorite one for that reason uh, that I wanted to highlight, we've talked a little bit about already, is Ocean's Hungry Grasp. The one where you can only have presence in coastal regions or the ocean and and you're trying to, from your huge strength in those areas, uh, ensure a win and figure out how you can deal with sort of the colonists building these powers inland and dealing with that. I think that those two spirits in the base game do such a good job of inverting the systems and inverting the game and showing the durability of it while giving you real challenge. And uh, yeah, what a game. I feel like jake we we've barely scratched the surface in some way, so I hope we've done the game justice because I think we both really wanted to set out to and it's sort of a unique take on the of an episode of decision space where we we got to sort of just scratch the surface and sort of settle into how the game made us feel more than anything
1: yeah I had a a great time talking with you brendan uh and and I hope people enjoy it. I know people are super passionate about this game, so. We'd love to hear your feedback as always, you know, what we got right, what we got wrong. Maybe from this conversation, you can tell us what, what aspects of the game you think we should continue to explore more. Cause I know this is a game I'll be continuing to play uh, both in person and, and on the Steam app, which I also want to just give thanks to Krill in our
0: discord for gifting me a copy of. Thank you so much. That is awesome. And if you do want to interact with us, you can do so on Twitter. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at Decision SPA, Decision Spa, Uh, or you can link up with us in our Discord, which you'll find a link to in the show notes. Discord is a really easy app to use that's sort of a a real-time messenger, and we've have an awesome community that's built up around the show, and we'd love for you to be a part of it, whether it's to play games that are coming up, like Race for the Galaxy, Seven Wonders Duel, and others, or just to talk about games, as there's conversations happening all the time there. I'd also like to say thank you to Hembry for their hit song, Reach Out, that is our intro and outro song. Always happy to hear Reach Out myself, and I hope you are all too. And we'll be back next week with another episode of Decision Space. Jake, this has been a pleasure as always. Take care, y'all. Bye.